Greetings and welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, Algonquin Park oral history author and storyteller. As most of you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park. In this episode, I'm going to focus on the Brent Run. Now, I know that unless you've been on staff at Camp Amic or the Portage Store on Canoe Lake or Camp Erewhon on Teepee Lake, you likely have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, the Brent Run is an unpromoted word-of-mouth competition that started in the 1930s on Canoe Lake. It involves two people paddling all the way from the south end of Canoe Lake through the Joes and the Otter Slides to Big Trout and then on through Burnt Root, Purley and the Petawawa River and Catfish Lake to Brent on Cedar Lake and back again. It all began in the 1930s with a rumor amongst the Canoe Lake community that a 160-kilometer canoe trip from Canoe Lake to Brent and back again had been paddled in less than 24 hours by two of the Stringer brothers. Unfortunately, history hasn't told us which two, as there were 12 children in the family who lived on Potter Creek at the north end of Canoe Lake. What we do know is that all of the Stringer brothers had been well-known fishing guides and from time to time had worked as Algonquin Park Rangers. Two could well have accomplished such a thing, but all had reputations for telling a tall tale or two, so locals weren't quite sure what to think. However, the thought had been planted and the gauntlet laid down, at least in the minds of Camp Amic staff members. Besides, a competition is a competition, and what more manly thing could anyone else have thought of? So not to be undone, in 1934, Amic staff members Bill Stokwa and Bill Little, later of Tom Thompson murder mystery fame, decided to see if they could break the record. Though they made great time heading north, unfortunately they got lost in the fog on Big Trout Lake on the return leg. Their officially recorded time, though, of 32 hours set the bar, and all waited to see what would happen next. In subsequent years, though many tried, none came close to matching the 32-hour record. That is, until 1948, when brothers Carl and Hank Laurier decided to give it a try. At over six feet tall, both were intimidating, yet warm and outgoing, with delightful senses of humor. Carl and Hank had first attended Camp Amic as campers beginning in 1935, and in 1946, Hank took out a cottage lease on the south end of Canoe Lake and Carl on Smoke Lake. They kept close ties with Camp Amic and Camp Wapameo staff, and often their cottage was the locale for off-hour staff parties. Over the years, both had established and honed reputations as heroic and superior canoe trippers and were the epitome of what were then called Big Wap Guides. As the mother of one friend reminisced, they were able to leap over long portages in a single bound, and we swooned whenever they passed by. They were also really fine canoeists, paddling solo with a powerful smoothness and a ballet-like grace to each stroke. Both loved to entertain, and Carl would frequently put on canoe demonstrations. As Don Lloyd, fellow Canoe Lake resident, shared in The Fires of Friendship, a history of the Taylor Staten camps that was published in 2005. I remember Carl, after putting on a marvelous demonstration of various strokes in the swimming pool, topped it off with a trick. He got out of the canoe, positioned it at right angles to the side of the pool, and held the stern of the canoe with his foot. While talking casually to bystanders, he innocently pushed the canoe some eight to ten feet out into the pool. Someone said, Carl, your canoe is getting away. He then ran and jumped into the canoe, sending up a great wave, but not dumping it. Great showmanship. Hank did say later that the ribs of his canoe took quite a beating from that trick. I also recall with amazement Carl's trick of walking up one gunwale of his canoe and back down the other side. 
he supported his 200 pounds on his paddle, notched into the opposite gunwale. The change from one side to the other was accomplished in a split second, neatly notching the paddle into an appropriate spot and transferring his weight all in the same move. I saw him do this several times. He never missed. So, with a miner's headlamp and a toothbrush for each of them, a huge lunch under their belts, fruit juice and sandwiches packed, Carl and Hank headed north for Brent from Canoe Lake. They didn't bother taking a map. As camp counselors and tripping guides, they'd gone back and forth to Brent frequently over the years and figured they knew the way pretty well. As Hank recalled in 2000, nearly a half a century after the event, we made Canoe Lake to Big Trout in four hours using Carl's chestnut canoe. Though we both were strong paddlers, our arms were trembling after so many hours of hard paddling. North of Burnt Root, we hit a fork and couldn't remember which way to go. Carl voted for going left, and I voted for going right. We flipped a coin and went right, which luckily was the right way. This first leg was completed in 13 hours, a new record. At the Brent store, they phoned into Camp Amick to register the fact that they'd made it there. On the return, they hit headwinds on Big Trout Lake, which cost them an hour, so it took 14 hours to get back to Canoe Lake. In the end, they clocked in at 27 hours. They had broken the previous record with time to spare. Their thing sat for another 40 years until 1990 when Chuck Beamish and Bob Anglin, also staff members at Camp Amick, broke the Laurier record and successfully completed the run in 23 hours. Fast forward over 20 years to the summer of 2013. The Beamish-Anglin record had still not been broken. Brothers Francis and George Quinby, longtime Algonquin Park residents from their family cabin on Smoke Lake and their time on staff at the outfitting department at Canoe Lake's Portage store, had tried unsuccessfully for several summers. The Quinby family would venture out on one or two canoe trips each summer, along with lots of day trips to a nearby Ragged Lake. Their father also occasionally did field work in the Tomogamy area, and the boys would sometimes accompany him there. Both were determined that 2013 would be the year that they would succeed. George had first heard about the Brent Run from Dave Stanfield, one of the members of the canoe maintenance crew at Camp Amick, home of most Brent Run competitors. George's first two attempts were with fellow Portage store staff members several times before. In each case, they completed the race in 31 hours. In 2012, Francis also attempted with a colleague and completed the race in 33 hours. Both were not satisfied with their results, and while at Guelph University over the winter of 2012 decided that since they knew each other so well, they should try again in 2013, but this time together. Though each hadn't done much paddling and portaging, Pre-training, George had taken out a few canoe trips earlier in the summer, and Francis had been working out a lot. So when in early July they were able to get days off together, they decided to try again, taking with them protein bars, energy endurance nutrition products, energy chews, pepperettes, trail mix, fresh fruit, and workout supplements. The two headed out and completed the run in 30 hours. This time was a personal best for both of them. As Francis recounted, going north, we made good time and reached Brent in a record-breaking 12 hours, but ran into trouble on the return leg. It took us 18 hours to make it back due to a massive headwind on Cedar Lake. However, a few weeks later, something remarkable happened. Two women, Quinn Cathcart and the Quinby boy's younger sister, Rachel, who also worked at the Portage store that summer, 
decided that they wanted to make an attempt. Best of friends, both had very deep roots in the Algonquin Cottage community. Quinn's grandfather, Hugh Gibson, and uncle, Dan Gibson, of Solitudes and Filmmaking fame, both attended Camp Amic as campers and staff and took out leases on Canoe Lake in the 1940s. Her family also had gone on many canoe trips, and as a Portage store staffer, had guided many day trips and taken trips with friends on days off. Rachel's Algonquin roots were even more deep. Her great-grandmother, Esther Kaiser, was Algonquin's first female canoe-tripping guide, and her great-uncle, Manly Sessions, ran Menacing Lodge on Burnt Island Lake from 1947 to 1952. As mentioned previously, with her family, she also had tripped extensively, but more importantly, she, as the younger sister of Francis and George, had spent a lifetime trying to hold her own against two talented older brothers. Ever since George had made his first attempt, Rachel had secretly wanted to try as well. She tried to convince him to partner with her to no avail, so was determined to find another woman of a similar mindset. With Quinn, she found a sympathetic ear. Now it's important to re-emphasize how huge a challenge it was that these two young women were about to attempt. Each 80-kilometer leg of the trip included 21 portages, covering over 9,000 meters of canoe carrying, five huge lakes, each at least six kilometers in length. Besides, though proud of the equality women had been able to attain over the last 40 years, it was still quite unusual for women in tripping circles to carry 45-pound canoes over extensive portages and paddle such distances. Now, I recognize that many in this day and age will disagree with me. The two women had been talking on and off about making an attempt since the summer of 2012. Sometimes it was as a joke, to rile up the guys. But underneath all of the light-hearted banter was a flicker of ambition and competitive spirit. So when the ice went out that spring and thoughts transitioned from studying for finals at university to thinking about their upcoming summer on Canoe Lake, the two of them started to talk up the idea more seriously. At first, it was just a whisper of an idea. But then later, it became more of a whirlwind. Finally, in July, after Francis and George returned from their third attempt, the competitive juices flowed and it became an obsession. Their thinking transitioned from, you know, this would be really something if it would be cool to try to do something, to, wow, you know, I really think we can do this. For a long time, Francis and George didn't take them very seriously, sure that when push came to shove, one or the other would chicken out. By late July, the adventure took on a life of its own, and July 30th became the agreed-upon D-Day. Once their scheduled departure date was set, it was important to be properly prepared. Now, a few years later, both realized the things that they'd do differently if they were ever to make another attempt. One, of course, was not to choose a date out of thin air or when they could next get a day off together. They should have taken a page out of Francis and George's playbook and left during a clear night, one with lots of moonlight and where at least 48 hours of good weather was forecast. This is because once off of the beaten path, the land that they were about to traverse is truly a wilderness. Though not historically always the case, the serious competitors in the last few decades have always started late at night, usually around midnight, though in the 1970s it was closer to 3 a.m. in the morning. This was for two reasons. The first was to ensure that on the return trek, when you were the most tired, one wouldn't be doing the most difficult part of the trip in the dark, the lower Padawara River between Catfish Lake and Big Trout Lake. 
The second is that the easier, more well-known and traveled stretch of the route, Canoe Lake to Burnt Island Lake and from Burnt Island to Big Trout, through the otter slides, would be what was done in the dark, so that if all goes well when the sun was coming up, you would be on the north end of Big Trout Lake. Another aha, only learned in hindsight, was to take seriously the idea of pre-trip paddling and endurance conditioning. Though both worked out and were in very good shape, they totally misunderstood the impact that paddling such distances would have on even the strongest of shoulders, arms, and back muscles. Most other Camp Amic staffers who'd ever attempted the Brent Run or other Amic paddling and portaging contests had engaged in comprehensive training routines in advance of the events. This involved daily practice, carrying canoes along nearby portages and hiking trails, and hours of paddling up and down Canoe Lake or the Tri-Lake Circuit to build the level of endurance needed for a serious attempt. For those unaware, the Tri-Lake Circuit is a nice several-hour paddle that starts at the Portage store, swings across the south end of Canoe Lake, proceeds south through the Bonita Narrows to Tea Lake, then goes west through Smoke Creek and ends up at the Smoke Lake Landing, where a quick portage takes you back to the Portage store. Given that both worked out pretty seriously and did a lot of running, Rachel and Quinn naively didn't think that strength would be an issue. But just to make sure that they had some extra energy in their muscles, they decided to do some carb loading. So two days before, they both went crazy, consuming poutine, 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 and more poutine, as well as grilled cheese sandwiches, bowls of ice cream, and cake. Perhaps not exactly a marathon trainer's idea of appropriate carb loading. A third really big issue that the two adventuresses didn't think through well enough was the fact that neither of them had ever done the entire trip before. For most, this likely would have been a showstopper, but not for Quinn and Rachel. Though Quinn had gone as far as Big Trout Lake on several family canoe trips, and Rachel had done some canoe tripping in and around the environs of Canoe Lake, north of Burnt Island Lake was unknown territory. For those unaware, Big Trout, Burnt Root, and Catfish are big lakes full of many bays and inlets. As Carl and Hank Laurier had discovered, there were lots of places where getting lost was potentially pretty easy to do. Also, the yellow Algonquin Park portage signs that are easy to see during the day are extremely difficult to locate at night. In hindsight, given the number of times they got lost or couldn't find the portage, Knowing the route better would have made a huge difference in both their self-confidence and their time. Nevertheless, both studied the Algonquin Park Canoe Routes map in detail. They then copied the pages that they needed, marking the lakes in yellow and portages in red, and tried to memorize as much of the topography as they could. Given that the challenge involved not just paddling but also many portages, it was important to travel as lightly as possible. Francis helped them choose a 16-foot Kevlar ultralight fiberglass canoe from the Portage store supply. It weighed about 45 pounds and was easy to flip and carry. They then borrowed paddles from Francis and George, Francis's gray owl bent shaft paddle for the bow person, designed for pushing lots of water, and George's Ray Kettlewell special in the stern, a sleek otter tail paddle designed for easy steering. The two brave souls also took along a day pack which contained a tarp, a rope, two survival emergency blankets, a small first aid kit, Petzl headlamps, a Nalgene bottle to store water, a couple of lighters in case they needed to start a fire, toilet paper, and rain gear. 
To keep up their energy along the way, they brought a handful of Cliff Bars, powdered Gatorade, some caffeine pills, five-hour energy shots, and trail mix. Not until much later did they realize how potentially dangerous caffeine pills and five-hour energy shots would be on such a trek. Full of nervous energy, the two couldn't wait till midnight, so headed off at 10.30 p.m. from the Portage store docks with a small group of fellow staffers wishing them well. Things started off well. The four-kilometer length of Canoe Lake to the Joe Lake Portage was paddled in 26 minutes. Known as Main Street by the locals, the Joe Lake Portage is one of the primary gateways to the Algonquin Park backcountry. At only 355 meters, it is a wide path and is easy to traverse, even in the dark. The trail comes complete with a solar-powered outhouse to minimize the environmental impact of humans needing a nature break after the long trek up Canoe Lake. Unfortunately for Quinn and Rachel, things quickly went south, literally with a wrong turn on Joe Lake. Just past the island, instead of continuing east, the pair unknowingly headed south into a little inlet. Though corrected quickly, the experience made them realize that paddling at night was a very different thing than doing so in the day. Deadheads and half-submerged stumps at times looked like scary monsters. It was very unsettling. The first real portage in the dark was the 435-meter trail that connected Little Joe Lake to Baby Joe Lake. Though possible to drag the canoe through the little set of rapids up the small creek, the two decided to take the portage. This wasn't the first time that Rachel and Quinn had portaged at night. Often they had headed out on overnight canoe trips on their days off, leaving late in the evening after their shift was over. As long as they had with them their powerful headlamps, portaging at night, at least on the most well-traveled routes, was not a problem. Unfortunately, this time they tried to run it. First, Rachel fell with the pack, and a little while later, Quinn fell with the canoe. They also inadvertently dropped the map, so had to go back to retrieve it, adding to the confusion and causing a further delay. These frustrations in the first few hours did not bow well for the rest of the trip. Eventually, however, they did get into a paddling routine, and by Burnt Island Lake, they were starting to get a really good rhythm going. As a sliver of moon rose near the end of Burnt Island Lake, there was enough light that the landscape came alive. It looked as if there was a massive forest fire to the west, which in fact there had apparently been in the late 1890s. To the two, it was very eerie and unsettling experience. At the north end of Burnt Island Lake, they went too far to the southeast, again got lost, and missed the sign for the 790-meter portage into Little Otterslide Lake. Eventually they found it, and though the path through the little creek that connects Little Otterslide to Big Otterslide Lake was a breeze, there was another frustrating delay. It was now 3.30 a.m. in the morning, and they couldn't find the portage into Otterslide Creek. Tucked into the northeast side of the lake, it's not intuitively obvious, even during the day, that there's a dam and a creek at that spot. I, myself, had been on a four-day canoe trip and was a day ahead of Rachel and Quinn going through the same area. We'd been challenged in finding it as well, and that was in the middle of the morning, so I can certainly appreciate the frustration of not being able to find it in the pre-dawn. These days, due to the number of beaver dams, Otter Slide Creek is hard enough to paddle through in the daytime, that I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to do so in the middle of the night. My count at the time was that there were at least 10 beaver dams too high to paddle over. This meant that Rachel and Quinn had to climb out of the canoe, haul the canoe up and over the dam, and then step back into the canoe and continue on. 
The synergy required to complete these steps smoothly and to navigate the twists and turns of the creek requires two people who've canoed together extensively, which of course was not the case for Rachel and Quinn. Having just completed this section of their trip the day before, I can vouch for its degree of difficulty. As a result, a section of the trip that was expected to take three hours took nearly five hours. It was here in this environment where Rachel got a taste of the fear that would come from time to time and almost become overwhelming. The lily pads and the long stringy grasses waving in the current brought to their imaginations images of the Lord of the Rings dead marshes scenes. However, after many hours of winding their way through the creek, the sun started to come up as they headed into Big Trout Lake. Luck was with them, as at that hour there was no wind, so often troublesome Big Trout was calm. Unfortunately, inadequate map reading skills and lack of familiarity with the route got them lost again. A paddle that should have taken an hour ended up taking nearly three hours. After 12 hours of paddling and only just leaving Big Trout Lake, they were only halfway through the first leg of the trek. With the toughest part of the journey, Big Trout to Cedar Lake ahead of them. Though a small, narrow lake, with no wind, longer lake was tough as fatigue started to set in. The women pushed on, determined to prove to all that they could do it. Luckily, by Burnt Root Lake, they got a second wind, and through Pearly Lake, they both continued to be very upbeat. Thus established a roller coaster of emotions that would become a constant aspect of the trip. This was a new experience for both of them. One moment they'd be euphoric and laughing hysterically and joking with each other. The next they'd be struck silent with depression. One moment their paddle strokes would be strong and powerful. And yet a few minutes later they could barely lift the paddles out of the water. One moment both would feel brave and the next moment fear nearly consumed them. It was here where their lack of paddling muscle memory came into play and keeping the rhythm that long distance paddling requires became more and more challenging. Though we'll never know for sure, the growing fatigue may also have been due to unfamiliarity with the bent arm and lean paddling tradition, which enables more use of the big muscles in the back rather than only arms and shoulders for keeping forward momentum. This summation of forces enables not just an efficient stroke, but the forward propulsion allows one to paddle further with much less energy. Pearly Lake was easy, but again lack of experience with the route sent them off on a wild goose chase at Snowshoe Rapids on the Petawawa River. Instead of staying with the river, they headed west instead of east on the portage and ended up at North Cuckoo Lake, a painful 925-meter wrong turn. This required over an hour of backtracking, which cost them dearly, not only in terms of time but also in terms of energy and enthusiasm, for this route was through wet, boggy terrain, making it a mosquito-biting paradise. Rachel and Quinn realized later that they had misread the portage sign, which infuriated Rachel so much that she chucked a large rock at the portage sign. Rachel's fury and frustration came from the fact that members of her extended family had just recently completed a seven-day trip to Brenton back. On this same portage, they'd started down the wrong way as well, but then realized, since it was clearly not being maintained, that perhaps they'd made a mistake. Rachel knew this and was determined not to make the same mistake, which made their error all the more galling. They finally reached Catfish Lake, a funny misshapen lake full of many bays at around 2 p.m., nearly 16 hours into this historic adventure. It started to get really hot, so they took a break and floated for a short time, enjoying the scenery. 
It was a beautiful lake and became a marvelously leisurely paddle. Then it started to sink in that the return trip through this area was going to be at night. So when they started aggressively paddling again, they focused on trying to memorize the lay of the land. At Narrow Bag Lake, just north of Catfish, they met other fellow backcountry canoe trippers for the first time. All were surprised to hear of their adventure and wished them luck. The longest portage of the trek was a 2,345-meter portage between Narrow Bag Lake and the Petawawa River. The trail skirted around several serious waterfalls, the largest being those at Stacks Rapids. In the spring, sometimes the water is high enough to shoot sections of the Petawawa River, and in the late 1800s, the river was the major waterway for that loggers used to transport white pine logs out of the park. Bob Henderson, a Camp Amic alumni, longtime canoe tripper and hiker who successfully attempted the run in the 1970s with fellow staff member Tom Hanks, told me that one of the issues on portages, especially long ones, is to determine whether to single or double carry the canoe. His perspective was that an open, wide trails with few rocks, much faster time was possible by carrying double, but that on windy, narrow trails with many ascents and descents, it was better to single carry and allow the second person to rest. For most portages, Quinn and Rachel would switch off every few hundred yards, which seemed to work for them. When they reached the south shore of Cedar Lake, they were glad to see that even though it was late afternoon, the lake wasn't too rough. After munching on a few cliff bars, they headed across the lake. As they got closer to the Algonquin Outfitter store at Brent, awareness began to seep in that this challenge was not about winning some crazy competition with the guys. Nor was it even about impressing them, though Rachel did admit that besting her brothers was still on the list, at least a little bit. Both of them began to realize that they were really doing this for themselves. With this reinvigorated sense of purpose, it didn't take long until they reached the north shore of the lake at around 5 p.m. They had now been paddling and portaging for nearly 20 hours. Checking in at the Brent store involved signing their names to a board that hung outside of the store. Few people were around, and those that were didn't exactly comprehend the enormity of what they were doing. So they bought a symbolic bag of potato chips and took a few pictures for posterity. As a side note, before they had left, Rachel's father had volunteered to drive in from North Bay to pick them up if they wanted to declare victory and call it a day at this halfway point. Though still somewhat undecided if they wanted to take her father up on his offer, Rachel still decided to call home if only to reassure her family that they were all okay. Alas, no one was home, so Rachel left a message and hung up the phone. The two both stood looking at each other for a few moments, and then with a high five, the decision was made. They hugged each other, took several really big breaths, turned around, and headed back to the canoe, which waited for them on the beach. They started the trip south and home. Unfortunately, as soon as they got in the canoe and pushed off, the wind picked up, so there was now a bit of a headwind. But as before, a few cliff bars gave them some energy and self-confidence, and believing that having come so far... Getting home would not be a problem, they plowed on. In hindsight, once again, it becomes apparent that experience means everything for this type of endurance challenge. It seems in hindsight that both Quinn and Rachel had not been doing a good job of keeping themselves properly hydrated. According to experts on the subject, dehydration happens when your body doesn't have enough water, occurring usually when you lose more fluid than you are drinking. 
In essence, your body can't work properly. The warning signs that the two were oblivious to included dizziness or lightheadedness, nausea or vomiting, muscle cramps and a dry mouth. Sweating stops, which causes your internal temperature to rise and even heart palpitations can occur. When severe, it can sometimes even result in mental confusion, weakness, and a loss of consciousness. Backtracking across the long portage back into Narrow Bag Lake was really difficult. According to Rachel, it seemed to go on and on and on and on. At one point, they both started to be concerned that somehow once again they were lost. This turned out not to be the case, but set the tone for a lot of negative energy. In hindsight, the worst was that they stopped talking to each other, which was another dangerous sign. But it wasn't until they were back again on Catfish Lake that it started to really become obvious that Rachel was in trouble. She couldn't eat or drink. Every mouthful tasted like ashes. As the sun started to go down, about halfway down the lake, she started to feel sick to her stomach, lightheaded, and hit the wall. She just couldn't paddle any longer. Not realizing how much both needed to drink on this type of trek, nor aware that dehydration was the problem and that her best course should have been to force Rachel to drink more water, Quinn decided that the best thing to do was to let Rachel rest. She solo paddled the canoe down the rest of the long, bay-filled lake, hoping that she was going in the right direction. When they reached the part of the Petawawa River that connects Catfish Lake to Pearly Lake, Rachel was feeling a little better. So they started back up the Petawawa River, a route that includes several not terribly long portages around rapids at various points along the way. Now it's tough enough dragging a canoe up rapids in low water during the day, but doing so in the dark is just perilous. They also remembered how they'd taken the wrong path the day before, so they took their time and moved very slowly. They were able to easily find the portage around Catfish Rapids, but soon after did miss a portage and almost got caught in some rapids. But some quick back paddling moves got them out of the predicament, but left them soaking wet and chilled. Up until that point, the weather had been cooperating, but around midnight, the weather turned and it started to rain. As the rain increased in intensity, it got very dark and very spooky. Rachel and Quinn were exhausted, and fear began to take hold. Alas, it was here on the Petawawa River near Snowshoe Rapids in the middle of the night, a very long way from home base, that these two women finally realized the danger involved in what they were doing. There were no white knights that were going to appear on their steeds and carry them back to civilization. A fall on the rocks, a sprained ankle, or a deep cut would leave them in a terrible predicament. Rather than take any further chances, common sense kicked in, so the two of them decided to take a break by the side of the river. For five hours, they huddled under the emergency blanket in a torrential downpour in what felt like freezing cold. The emergency blanket, of course, was not waterproof, so a fine mist rained down upon them the entire time. Though they had lighters and could have gathered wood and lit a fire, but like being lost in a snowstorm, this seemed to require too much effort, and lying down seemed a better course of action. So they wrapped their arms around each other to stay warm and tried to keep as dry as possible, oblivious to how close they were to serious hypothermia. Around 4 a.m., the sky started to lighten with dawning of a new day. At that point, both women came to the conclusion, at about the same time, that continuing to sit by the side of the river in the rain was a recipe for disaster. So with great determination, the two totally drained women shook themselves awake, climbed back into their canoe, and with tremendous grit kept going. 
Unfortunately, this initial enthusiasm didn't last. On Pearly Lake, it got really bad as the situation started to take its toll and both started hallucinating. They saw portage sarns where there were none. In the portal rapids between Pearly Lake and Burntroot Lake, both fell so many times on the rocks while pulling the canoes up the rapids that by the time they got to Longer Lake, they could hardly get themselves back into the canoe. Both Rachel and Quinn have agreed that paddling Longer Lake was a nightmare and another very low point on their roller coaster journey. When they reached the portage from Longer Lake into Big Trout Lake, it was nearly 36 hours from when they'd started. They decided to try the caffeine pills to gain some quick energy, washing them down with some powdered Gatorade and some more cliff bars. The power jolts of caffeine did the trick and they were able to paddle Big Trout in an hour, even though it was raining. By the time they entered Otterslide Creek, the rain had stopped and it started to clear. Life improved dramatically with the resulting warmth from the sun. They took a rest on Burnt Island Lake and to make the final push through the Joe Lakes, they both consumed the remaining five-hour energy drink. This was a huge mistake, as their hearts started racing, and by the time they reached Joe Lake, both were getting punchy and nearly delirious. This was especially disheartening as they were so close to home. By the time they reached Joe Lake Dam, it was nearly 5 p.m. Their hearts were still racing, and the thought of climbing back into their canoe and continuing on was almost unbearable. They spent nearly 20 minutes walking back and forth across the short Joe Lake portage, with the last bit of determination, they started out on the last leg, knowing when they passed Wapameo Island and saw the portage store in the distance that the end was in sight. Both knew that it was time for the final push through their pain, and not knowing where the energy came from, they dug in and paddled their hearts out. They had in their mind's eye, once they reached the docks, this idea that there would be crowds of friends and fellow portage store staffers waiting anxiously for them on the portage store docks. Alas, though a few came running down from the restaurant to welcome them with jubilant hugs, it was for the most part just another end of the day at the portage store. As word spread of their return, more folks appeared, excited to share their joy in having achieved what many thought two women could never do. They'd taken on the Brent run and clocked in at 43 hours. Their time was certainly not close to breaking the record, but not a shabby showing at all and at a time not to be ashamed of. The relief was palpable in the voices of family members and significant others when the two of them called in to advise that they were back home safe and sound. Both sets of parents had been waiting anxiously for hours and were so proud of their success. The celebration, complete with hugs, high fives, laughter and tears, went on well into the evening. The first stop was to the restaurant to get food and both ate way too much, ending up feeling a bit sick. In the showers, both were so tired that they couldn't stand up and ended up leaning against the wall as the hot water rushed and washed away the dirt, sweat, and tears. The next day, both were pretty well useless at work, and it was several days later before they were back to normal. Their legs came through the ordeal pretty well, but shoulder, arm, and back muscles were seriously stiff and sore. As Quinn said the next day, it was one of the hardest things I have ever done. In the end, though, it felt so great to have accomplished this feat and to have done so with my best friend was just awesome. And Rachel echoed, I don't know that I could have done it with anyone else but Quinn. We had this uncanny ability to sense each other's moods and switch on and off so that when I was in the dumps, she was able to bring me out of my slump and vice versa. As with all who have ever done the Brent Run, in the end, the actual times achieved don't really matter all that much. What matters most is the realization of what has been accomplished.
The Brent Run has been a stealth race for a very long time and needs to be approached not just cautiously but with respect for Mother Nature and her power. Over the decades it comes and goes in its popularity. The mythology surrounding it gets passed on through word of mouth. Though it has many competitive attributes, as Rachel and Quinn and Francis and George have discovered, it ultimately is a race that one does for oneself, not for anyone else. Though physically demanding, it really is, like so many endurance efforts, a high-risk mental challenge. Luckily, Rachel and Quinn came through the experience with no serious ill effects, though potentially there could have been many. In chatting recently with several who have successfully completed the race, their cautionary tales indicate some important lessons learned. First, of course, is the importance of pre-trip physical conditioning. Normal weight training or running is not enough. Though useful for portaging, this type of physical fitness is of very little value for the paddling efforts, as a different set of muscles is required. Training for the race requires serious practice paddling in all types of weather, Traditional competitors spend their summers canoe tripping extensively, which builds the proper muscle groups. This is not the case for most others. As one endurance bike racer shared in a recent blog, it's important to know what to expect from your body when it's being pushed to the limits. The only way this is going to happen is by doing many long rides before the race. Second, it is absolutely critical that competitors know the route. George, who had attempted it three times, could probably now do the trip without detailed maps. Rachel and Quinn lost their way several times because they were not familiar with the route, but even more importantly did not take with them detailed enough maps. Another important aspect is to set a departure time based on accurate self-assessments of where on the trek there might be the greatest difficulty at night. In the 1970s, Otterside Creek was considered one of the most difficult sections of the journey, and many who attempted would leave at 3 a.m. in the morning, which would enable them to move through the creek as the sun was coming up and use the windy river on the way back as a way to rest for a bit before the final push to Canoe Lake. Francis and George left at midnight, which meant that they traveled through Otterside Creek in the dark in both directions, a fearsome challenge. It's also important to have a good handle on what sorts of weather might be encountered with a strong moon very helpful for night travel. Fourthly are food considerations. The consensus from endurance racers seems to be that consuming something every hour, even if one isn't hungry, is a good idea, and solid foods are better than liquid-based caloric intake, with caffeine pills and five-hour energy shots not a great idea. Marathon runners talk about beginning to hydrate days before an event and eating starchy whole grains such as potatoes, whole grain pasta, quinoa, oats, and corn, along with lots of fruits, veggies, and a lean proteins beginning a week before. Fifth is the importance of listening to your body and learning how to deal with mental challenges that will arise. As Rachel and Quinn learned, tiredness tends to come in waves, and with it often comes very intense feelings. Endurance racers often talk about building skills in self-talk and imagery as good strategies for developing stronger emotional control. But in addition to body awareness is, of course, environmental awareness. Luckily, Rachel and Quinn realized on the Petawawa River that continuing in torrential rain was a very high risk and stopped. Other competitors have talked about nearly falling asleep while paddling and realizing that it was best to stop for power naps. 
As Chuck Beamish said, who, as I mentioned in the beginning, broke the record in 1990 with Bob Angland by completing the trek in 23 hours. The Brent Run is not done for mass recognition. It's a race that you do for yourself. You only hear of a good time every eight or ten years, so it's not the type of thing that everyone talks about. The rules of the race are all unofficial. It's up to the paddlers. The people who paddle appreciate the rules that have been created, and they respect all the others who've attempted and completed the run. Now, it's important to note that neither Camp Amic or the Portage Store have ever sanctioned these attempts in any way. Camp Erewhon on Teepee Lake has institutionalized a form of the competition by creating a specific program around the race for its most senior campers. A small number sign up for the program and engage in a daily training regime. The actual competition is heavily supervised by staff and competitors stay at specific campsites overnight and only compete during the day. The thing is, whatever the circumstance, I think that everyone who ventures into Algonquin Park will eventually have at some point their own personal Brent run. Whether it is on a portage or paddling a big lake in a headwind or struggling to light a fire in a rainstorm or running out of juice on a long hike. Whatever your moment will be and whenever it happens, it will be a time when you have to find the strength within yourself to push on through and keep on going. And when you make it to the other side, the joy and the sense of self-confidence that will be engendered is worth every minute of pain or self-doubt. For all of you involved, that will be your personal Brent run, and indeed a well-remembered Algonquin-defining moment. My most recent one a few years ago was on the Bonfield-Dixon Portage, the longest in the park. However, for the story of that experience, you'll have to wait until my Canoe Tripping Then and Now podcast. For other Algonquin stories, check out my website, algonquinparkheritage.com, or the Friends of Algonquin Bookstore, which you can get to both in person or online.